It's nice to see you. Nice to see you. We're really, really pleased to be joined today by Michelle Malamo from the University of Worcester. Uh, thanks for joining us, Michelle, for our podcast recordings. Hi. Hi. Ah, nice to see you. So, Michelle, you're going to talk to us today about psycholudics in play. I smile when I say it because it's a really unusual word and it's something that I, as a speech and language therapist, have never heard of. So, if you wouldn't mind starting us off by, by just telling us, what is this? <laughs> okay, so psycholudics is a, is a theory about play, but it's a therapeutic play theory that was um the kind of the brilliant wisdom really of two amazing play um worker um theorists called um gordon Sturrock and perry else and way back in 1998 they went to a conference in colorado and they wanted to present this paper about psycholudics which is a an, a name that they've made up but actually gives a lot of um gives you a big clue in the in the wording really so ludic means play and psyche which is is a, is a word that we we all understand is about the brain or the mind so um i i sort of really found myself uh, as a play worker and over a period of about 20 years really aligning myself with this theory and kind of thinking why is the play work field keeping it a secret from the early years they weren't really but i just wanted to sort of you know share it with early years practitioners because i, I felt it was um a, a theory that would enable and empower them to really gain an understanding of a, of a cycle of play but actually what was happening with inside inside the child in a sense but also really more importantly psycholudics is a really fantastic theory because it actually defines the role of the adult in the play process really really well um and i think that's that's really exciting i mean i, I it's really difficult. I mean, I don't know where you want me to start, but I can give an overview so that we can get our teeth into it. But obviously, this is just the very basics that we're looking at. Yeah, and that's quite today. good because that role of the adult, we're always looking, aren't we? Interesting. Okay, what is our role? What What do we do? What's the most important thing we can do in early years to enable like brighter futures and enable children to be really sort of have a child centered for us to have a child-centered approach so so yeah so it, we're really interested in in what what we can do as adults that's lovely okay so let's start at the very beginning then so um if we think of a playing child um we, we we sometimes as practitioners really want to get involved and really want to you know kind of but without much thought about what is happening here what's happening and so basically um, a desire to play starts within the child's brain and you don't need to understand why or why when or where or how that happens but it's something we would call the metalude so it, it what what happens before the play process starts so in their brain something will have sparked and they will want to play okay and um i'm a great believer that you can't stop play anyway it'll happen even if you try and stop it so Yay. the mental <laughs> happens and then what the child does is the child looks looks in that play process to send out a cue and we've heard about cues we've other people talk about cues but now a cue can be to another person it can be so for example if a child's got a ball and they want to play with the ball they might be sending a cue out to a piece of tarmac. They might throw that tarmac, throw that ball down to the tarmac, and then the the tarmac gives the next stage, which is a return. Now, 
we need to, as adults, only be part of that play cycle if a cue is sent to us. Yeah, yeah. And and rather than and so the actual process of the child being able to do that. So what what from a therapeutic point of view, whatever's happened in that metalute will be meeting a need for the child's well-being, or it might be it might be something they, they don't even understand. And then a wonderful example is um, I always think about have you ever watched a child pick off pick PVA glue off their fingers? Oh yes, yeah. And and that's like that's a cue to the glue if that makes sense. And sometimes we're like, oh quickly go wash your hands, get that off. But actually the process of actually picking that glue off their fingers is creating something within that child that's fulfilling that therapeutic power of play really and it is really therapeutic picking pick oh it's, pick it. it's great <laughs> so, but sometimes what happens is is that then returns and so the, the the complex nature of play is that within a playground you'll have lots of these returns and cue you know cues and returns some returns are not not returned so a child might send a, a, a cue out to someone else so will you play with me no that's a really simple one mm. so they go off and try and find something else or they might then look to the environment to give them that return if that makes sense yes. so you might see lone children just playing on their own um and then what happens is when these when the cues and returns happens we then have the cycle flowing the play flows going and you know there is a frame of play now it might be multiple um kind of cues and frames happening does that make sense yes it does yeah cues returns frames cues returns frames so in a playground you can imagine that's really complex but then there's two really lovely terms and my students always hook onto this is that within that within the play cycle adults are often very guilty of doing two things annihilation yeah. Is annihilating the play without any thoughtful intervention or therapeutic intervention and the other thing that they're really guilty of is adulterating now when you when you commit adultery it's when you take something that's not yours and so using adulteration in play i think is really powerful because i passionately believe that play belongs to the child yes it really so does yeah so we have no right to adulterate it Sometimes we do have to annihilate because it's time to go home, but there are sensitive and therapeutic ways in which we can do that. But interestingly, um, I want to return to a, a, an ancient philosopher, uh, Plato, which you probably have been um, very familiar with. You can discover more about a person in an hour of play than in a year of conversation, yes. is what he said. And what psycholytics does is it kind of it tells you where you can be in the play and where you should be as the practitioner is holding that frame right at the edge yeah. observing and holding and it doesn't mean to say that you can't make a sensitive intervention into play but it's about stepping back holding back and just going okay i can see what's happening here we've got a cue Where's the return? Okay, that's that's fine. That's happening. Now it might be that they send a cue out to the environment, and there just isn't enough sticks. Yeah. So a sensitive intervention is: can I, can I help you? Do you need anything? Yes. Yeah. I need more sticks. Okay, let's try and find some, and then really coming back to the frame. Then 
Do you think that's where that provocation comes in then? It's just like you're just observing. It's really important just to observe. And and I, and I think this is sometimes um, people feel like, like you say, that they need to be doing something. And actually observing is doing something. It's so important to understand, isn't it? And to and I think, step I think back. Psycholudics releases us into the power of doing observation. Yeah, that's what we need. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I kind of encourage my students to sort of say, when the Ofsted inspector comes around, talk about psycholudics. So what I'm doing here is I'm using this strategy. It's a therapeutic approach. So I'm making well thought through interventions. And it's, it, it go, I mean, my first sort of kind of way of thinking about this was when I used to think about kind of um, facilitating children's expression in behaviour, really. So, you know, when you used to sort of, oh, I'm going to count to 10 before I do anything. Yeah. But that wasn't really a theoretical mm. framework. That was just something that we were kind of, you know, 25 years ago, that's what we were sort of doing in practice. But actually, this is a, a theoretical framework that that kind of puts the power of that restorative power of play in children's mental health as well. Because with the metalute, you can't suppress it. We can try as adults to say, you know, um, don't do this, don't do that. And when I was studying uh, my master's in play, um, one of the things you had to do is antidotically sort of like watch children playing in places. Um, and, you know, I remember watching children play in a fish and chip shop. Right. And it's really powerful. And I was able to sort of think, oh, that's the, you know, and they yeah. did this big, the floor was blue and they did this big frozen ice dance while they were waiting for their mum and dad to get the <laughs> chips. Now, playing in a fish and chip shop isn't a, a place where, you know, we as adults would say you can play. Mm. But the power of play is much more powerful than that. And actually, um, there was a conversation about somebody who died and the children were just lost in their play. They didn't. They did. They knew that person because they'd initially said that in the conversation. But then they went on to play. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. And, and so we need to kind of really make. Um, there are other theories that support, and I could talk about later. Yeah, well, we can do time. another podcast yeah. there, because we've got, we love talking about this, because knowing, empowering people to understand what they're doing, and that, yes, that's okay to do that, and giving it a name, like you say, in we all sort of if we know where our practice comes from and we know the theory behind it i think we feel much more secure in our practice don't we yeah. and, and recently i've had a group of students who have just done um some presentations on these emerging theories i mean we, they're, you know they're, they're 20 30 years old some of them but compared to some of the theoretical stuff we study this is this is fairly new yeah um, and it's been really interesting they've just done an assessment and um, to see the power of the knowledge and so psycholudics also, I think, unlocks early years practitioners' brains yes. to something new. And when you, when you kind of can release yourself to say, the power of what I'm doing by just observing and holding the frame, supporting that process, we do not have to understand what's happening in the child's brain. What we just need to do is give ourselves permission to know that children can, through play, support their own mental health. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes, it, sometimes we do see disturbing things in play. Mm. Sometimes we, we step in too quickly when we see something that's perhaps a little bit uncomfortable. But 
having the sort of knowledge of knowing when to and when not to and you know the power of adulteration i think what you, nobody wants to do that with children's play surely so when you give yourself that reminder i'm not going to adulterate do i do i need to make an intervention that's different mm. um and that happens through discussion with the child about what you're seeing um i just think it's it, it for me it's it's one of the kind of if i was to say what theories have changed the way you think and if you were to sort of name your top one it, i think it has to be my top one oh can i ask those terms annihilation and adulteration i mean they're very emotive um mm. words what what is the risk to the child and their development or their well-being if we do those processes so i because everything you're saying i'm like yeah that, yeah absolutely brilliant and i know that we are we're all guilty at times of doing that definitely so but, but when we do that or if we do that repeatedly if that is you know every now and then it, that's what happens but if we if that was our our approach to child in interaction what are we doing to that child or what are we stopping from happening well the therapeutic power of play if that makes sense and so there are some there are some times that we need to we need to annihilate play you know you can't keep your setting open all day and all night but how do we do that how do we make that kind of part of the process of the play cycle so talking to children about things coming things having to come to an end rather than right time to pack away you know all that sort of or like let's have a bell it's how we kind of look at the individual child and sort of okay we know that you know that john needs about 10 more minutes than everyone else to know it's coming to an end does that make sense so we talk to him about when it's time to go home how can we end this and it might be you know the classic sort of i've, I've done this thing where you know if you're in the middle of some construction stuff it's really important that that stays in place yeah does yeah. that make sense yeah um, that it's it's valued as as the you know the end of that so um that's that's what i would say adulteration i think is is probably more dangerous um, to a child's well-being if you if you're you know we believe in child-centered process don't we we believe that the child should be at the center of every process that happens so to to be so strongly adult-led how does that meet the mental health and the brain development of, of a developing child i i i question that um, myself but i also recognize that maybe in in the way that we've trained early years practitioners and because of the statutory framework that's that's what's probably what's pushing that and so i don't i don't kind of blame people for struggling with that but it's just a question of how can we empower children rather than making it about us as adults does that make sense i think that's so helpful that's really really helpful that's a it's, I think that this will be, I do think this will be new to quite a lot of people as yeah. well. Is there, is there like a go-to place for more information or is it just a bit of a, do a bit of a research on, on the internet? Or is, is there like a good sort of place to go and find out more if people wanted to learn yeah, more? I mean, Sturrock and Alice have written a number of texts. 
So again, it's something that I can share with you and, you know, that I can recommend a couple so that we can post them maybe on your Facebook page. Yeah, that'd be brilliant. Thank you. Um, and um, obviously it is something that we're covering in our new foundation degree. Um, we've got a module now, which is playful pedagogy because we, you know, we really feel that this approach um, is, you know, amongst a number of other theories as well. We don't just do cycludics. There, there are other theories as well that are really important to consider. Um, it's it's really important that we kind of have taken this into account as we're moving forward and it's about people developing a personal playful pedagogy that's really kind of steeped in theoretical frameworks as well as a statutory framework mm. which is just one it's just one thing that we have to look at but if we can go above and beyond what the statutory framework requires us to do with I think therapeutic and brain-based theories then I think we're on a win-win really so I, I'd be really happy to share some recommended sources um, which we can post if that's okay. Oh. Uh, thank you so much it's fascinating it's, it's something that yeah like Becky and I said before we could talk to you actually all day about because I'm learning so much. It makes you want to go back to university doesn't it and just yeah, like, I I like can, can we come? Yeah. <laughs> do one of our courses love to see you. oh we love it thank you so much michelle thank you bye thank you bye bye, bye.